Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Politics on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bill Scher. Today we'll be discussing the brand new book, Digital Civil War, Confronting the Far-Right Menace by Democratic activist Peter Dow. Thanks so much for being on the show. Great to be here, Bill. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, you've had a, a long history in both Democratic Party politics and online Netroots activism. You've kind of almost jumped back and forth between those two worlds. Uh, You began in uh, John Kerry's presidential campaign as a blogger liaison. In fact, full disclosure, you you liaison with me back in those days, in my old blogger days. and, and And you're also on Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2008, and sort of in, in an alternating between those periods, you've been a very visible presence uh, online in social media. Um, uh, how did those experiences inform your perspective on this book? Uh, that's a great question. In, in fact, the experience of being on the inside of presidential campaigns and in both the Kerry campaign and the Clinton campaign, I actually worked in the war room, which is a very unique perspective um, on American politics. And also, as you say, I've been a progressive activist. I actually started a few years before the Kerry campaign um, on message boards and chat rooms. And just when we first started the, you know, even at the very inception of blogs, the beginning of online politics, 2000, 2001. So being able to toggle back and forth, Bill, has been, has given me a really, um, I think, richer perspective on this, what I call a digital civil war, this, this very intense, uh, Red, blue, left, right, Democrat, Republican um, fight that that's that's going on and is intensifying, um, and and having that perspective of how it looks like from inside a campaign and then from outside as an activist has definitely informed the book. And you say in the very beginning of the book, you're not just informed by your adult professional experience, but by your childhood experience growing up in the middle of the. Lebanese civil war, not an online civil war, but a true blue flesh and blood civil war. Um, what is it like uh, having grown up around actual war and then being in the middle of uh, you know, firing back via tweets and Facebook posts and, and, and GIFs? Well, yeah, I mean, the, so my, my parents met at Columbia University and then moved to Lebanon. My dad um, uh, passed away many years ago, but was Lebanese um, and he and, and my mom's American. So they moved back there in the 60s to Beirut when it was the Paris of the Middle East. But of course, a few years after I was born, the Civil War broke out and lasted my entire youth. So um, it was extremely difficult, painful, dodged missiles and bombs, you know, for, for years and, and, and narrowly escaped death many times. It was uh, obviously the formative experience of my life to grow up in conflict like that. We were displaced from our home. So coming over here back home to New York, which is my mom's hometown, 
um, and just settling in New York all these years and then spending some time in D.C. and looking at the political conflict here. I started seeing so many parallels. For example, the the dehumanization of adversaries, the just the siloed tribalistic approach. A, a lot of things, and and most importantly, maybe is the the sense that even when war was going on in in one area, there would be pitch battles, but then in another area, people would be just going on with their lives and living. There's an incredible disconnect that can happen. Humans are unbelievably adaptable, right? You can have, you know, overnight bombing and shelling, and then the next day you get up to go back to school and work and live your life. So analogously here, you have these really intense digital fights. Now, a number of, of, and I mentioned in the book, you know, prominent mainstream pundits like and, and journalists like Chuck Todd and Carl Bernstein have used the term civil war to describe what's happening. But I think everybody's struggling for what type of civil war it is because we know this is extremely intense, what's going on right now on immigration, on abortion, on guns. And some have used cold civil war or soft civil war. My, my friend Greg Sargent, Uncivil War is the title of his book. And I thought more about it. I thought, where are the battlefields of today? It's, it's certainly not the fields of the South. It's not standing armies. The battlefields are, are platforms like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and 8chan and 4chan and on and on and on, Gab. Now, we can't minimize, just as I said with Lebanon, where some areas there was war, some days there were war, and then other days you just lived your life. Similarly here, you know, we have movies and sports and go about our lives and have our work and our vacations. And it's, it's hard to imagine that we're actually in a civil war. But these battles, Bill, are affecting lives. People are being radicalized. The, the extreme right is radicalizing and mobilizing people on these platforms. And those people are going out and killing people in the real, in the non-virtual world. And similarly, the fights we have, say over you know, the, the, the border policy, the outcry that can happen on a place like Twitter or Facebook or, or, or other platforms can affect policy. And that policy has life and death consequences. So digital civil war does not mean a war that's entirely virtual. There are, people are dying in this war and they're being radicalized online. So that's how I see it. Now, one can look at your title, digital civil war, uh, confronting the far right menace. And I think you know, without knowing what your argument is, have two immediate distinct impressions. You you could be arguing uh, civil war is horrible. We need to defuse it uh, and find common ground so we're not at each other's throats. Or you could say we have to win it. There there are two sides here, and one side is good and one side is bad, and the bad needs to be vanquished. Uh, Is one of those frameworks your framework? I, I think it's 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 a combination of the two. You know, having lived through conflict and seen people make peace and coexist, brutal, bitter enemies, mortal enemies coexisting, I know that people can come together. By the same token, there there's an element in in American culture and politics right now of right wing extremism that's extremely violent, racist, white supremacist you know, neo-Nazis, very, very dangerous component. And I think they need to be defeated. Now, of course, um, all of this is within, you know, lawful, nonviolent political means. I'm certainly not advocating in any way violence of any sort. I'm, I'm just advocating politically we have to defeat that component because it's holding us back. So I think it's a combination of the two. Make, you know, create greater understanding, which I try to do in the book, which is to lay out these deep issues. The, the fundamental 
premise of the book is that underlying these battles that we have online are moral arguments on abortion, on immigration, on guns, on inequality, on issue after issue. There are deep moral arguments being made by both sides. And who's right? You know, surveying this battlefield and taking a look, who's right? So we make peace where we can, excuse me, and defeat the elements that I think will not want to make peace. Um, now you in the book, you do touch upon concerns around uh, America's increasing polarization. Uh, is there a risk in you know, waging civil war, uh, however nonviolently, um, but by characterizing the other side in very harsh terms, you're going to contribute to polarization in a way that serves the purposes of uh, the extreme right folks that you are trying to marginalize, if not outright defeat? Well, I, you know, t- I, I point out in a couple of places in the book research and studies that show that polarization in American politics is asymmetric. The, the GOP has polarized and become extreme at a far greater rate. And the, one could argue the Democratic Party and, 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 and progressive not really actually become uh, more extreme at all. So really, it's one-sided uh, um, polarization. I mean, the, the, you know, the fundamental problem, uh, even though there are two sides to a fight, it is possible that only one side is right and one side is wrong. Often, it's more nuanced in some areas. But what I'm arguing here is we have to take a look at exactly what's going on. I, I call it an eyewitness account because I'm not a political scientist and I'm certainly not a historian. You know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an activist and advisor, and I'm looking at this as a participant, as an eyewitness. So I'm just saying, here's what's happening. Here are the moral arguments underlying them, and here's how you can look at it, and here's how you can determine who's right and who's wrong using your own conscience and common sense. Um, so, you know, I, I certainly am not trying to contribute to increased polarization, but I'm trying to just tell the truth. And if the truth shows one side becoming more extreme, it is what it is. We have to deal with it. Now, uh, you, you talked earlier about how some of what's happening in the far right corners of the online world uh, have um, uh, morphed into uh, real world violence. And so you can't treat the digital world as somehow distinct from uh, the real world. There is a, a, you know, a growing argument, if you will, uh, summed up as Twitter is not real life. Uh, and this often gets mentioned in terms of the Democratic uh, Party primary. We're, we're talking in the, in the spring of 2019, the primary is, season is just beginning. Uh, and if you were following a lot of people on the left on Twitter or other social media, you would find a lot of uh, uh, disagreement, if you will, with uh, Joe Biden, even though Joe Biden appears to be uh, leading in le- at least the polls that we see as of this moment. Um, what does that tell you about the relevance of the online world? Is it too much of a niche uh, bubble that is removed from day-to-day life, or um, is what is what is what's happening there? Is the fights and the debates happening there? You know, separate from right-wing violent extremism, these other kinds of debates. How connected are they from the real the real world political discourse? It, it, that's a great question, and I, I grappled with that a lot. Not so much 
explicitly in the book, but as I was writing the book and just in, in, in my daily life, because I'm online a lot, obviously, it's what I do. Look, Twitter is not real life, um, as you say, has become sort of a truism at this point, because there are components of what goes on there and the intensity of some of the fights and the anonymity that just don't reflect uh, what what day-to-day existence is like when you're off that platform. By the same token, Bill, and you know, the flip side of that is that you know, the entire totality of, 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 of digital media platforms, because I'm not just talking about Twitter. It's, it's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, uh, 4chan, 8chan, Reddit. It can go on and on, you know, Gab. And there are even smaller networks that, that the far right uses to connect with one another and to, and to essentially push a white supremacist ideology and to radicalize and mobilize people. So it's really the entirety of digital platforms. For a long time, I've argued that, you know, what I sometimes say the non-virtual world instead of the, the real world, right? Because, of course, digital is the real world. We live online. We're all plugged in. Everybody's connected. And certainly younger generations, there is no longer a distinction. Our entire life is surveilled through all these different platforms that we use, through all the places we shop. Our whole world is online. So there's no longer a distinction in my mind between you know, the so-called real world and, and, and a fake world. It's really, there's the non-virtual world, which is going to, the, you know, get, grabbing a cup of coffee from a coffee shop, right? That's not a virtual thing that you're doing. So I think, I think the answer to your question is, yes, you will see dichotomies. A pretty stark one, you're right, for the 2020 uh, Democratic uh, primary, where you're seeing polls reflect something very different from these Twitter battles. But I don't think that dichotomy means that the digital world isn't, isn't affecting the non-virtual world. I mean, you know, you see stories of, for example, uh, one of the synagogue shooters was on Gab saying, I'm going to go shoot him up. You see a lot of these people on Facebook literally announcing the violence they're going to do and getting radicalized on these platforms. This is real life. This is life and death. Um, and so, so to that end, just to stay focused on, you know, the interesting battles within the left, you, know, you focus a lot about confronting the far right, um, but the ability for almost any individual to have a, their own social media platform and to have maybe a, a louder voice than they might have had in the pre-internet days, um, to what extent does that complicate the ability of those who want to combat the far right to find unity amongst themselves because it's so easy to fall into a lot of uh, intra-party civil war along the way. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a danger. I, I've been, I've been uh, cautioning a lot of my uh, progressive and democratic and leftist friends um, and not even friends, adversaries and rivals that, you know, we need to make sure that we, that a, that a sort of side civil war doesn't erupt over Primarily the Bernie Sanders candidacy because he was part of 2016. There are very, very, very bitter and deep scars um, from from that election, as we all know. Um, so yeah, you're right. There is a risk of a sort of side battle breaking out um, on the Democratic side, and we're seeing signs of that. Uh, so far, it, it seems relatively contained, but I do touch on that in the book. But fundamentally, when you really push all the chaos and noise and static aside and take a look, there really is a fundamental red-blue divide that many people have described as some form of a civil war. And that's really the thrust of the book. I, I look at polling. I list a, a number of issues. The stark difference between 
and again, I use red and blue in the most general terms, like people who, you know, on the blue side, it could be progressive, leftists, liberals, Democrats, different types of Democrats, and similarly on the right. Um, but generally speaking, red and blue America are at war politically with one another. Red America has a media infrastructure and ecosystem that it's self-contained, driven by Fox, Talk Radio, Sinclair, and all these other, you know, social media platforms. Um, and it's a self-contained system. So th- this is a real this is a, a real fight. I mean, take a look at any issue. Just grab any look at climate, for example. The difference in polling. I mean, on on in red America, the, the argument is there isn't even climate change not even happening. And then in blue America, it's you know huge majorities understand that the climate crisis is a threat. These disparities, Bill, are are, are creating this 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 digital war that we're having. We're talking with Peter Dow, author of Digital Civil War, Confronting the Far-Right Menace, uh, just published by Melville House. Uh, Now, when we talk about red-blue divide, uh, I I think a lot of folks, a lot of folks in the media, certainly a lot of folks on the red side of that divide, um, frame that as the red being part of the real America, the heartland, and the blue is the coast, the cities, the uh, the the egghead college elitist crowd. Um, is it is it problematic to for uh, those on the blue side to uh, embrace that kind of terminology? Does does it risk them being painted as uh, not representing the real America? That's an exceptional question, and it's such an important issue because it, it, this narrative. I mean, I, I open the book with the story of the real American, and I, I find that this narrative, which really goes back to the inception of our country, I quote a number of historians um, uh, about race and, and 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 racial division in America. There is a, a sort of underlying theme through. All major media cover, coverage through political establishment behavior it was reflected in the behavior that somehow a rural white Christian conservative or Republican represents the quintessential American, right? That That's the real American. That's the person you need to appeal to. You see a lot of it, as I say, on both the Democratic and Republican side, and it's reflected in the media that, you know, we have to get that real American voter, which completely minimizes the fact that, you know, uh, uh, an American in Baltimore is a real American, an American in a major city in Miami, in Puerto Rico, wherever, is also equally American. But there is this thread that runs through politics that somehow they are less American than this image of the white Christian male Republican, uh, you know, waving the flag and supporting the troops and, you know, yeah, that's America. And of course, as I say, that goes back to the inception of this country, that, 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 that anyone other than that is lesser, is not equal. Uh, so uh, what can folks do online uh, to counteract that stereotype and not you know, walk into that stereotype? <laughs> knowledge, is, knowledge is power. Part of writing the book for me was to go underneath all these frames and narratives. Because if you think about how the right, uh, Red America, but I'm not talking about, you know, Red America as rank and file voters. I'm talking about the actual, uh, the leadership, like the Republican Party, these billionaires who fund these think tanks. Um, it's, it's in their interest to continue to 
push these narratives and they do it in highly sophisticated ways. You know, you and I have seen how long Frank Luntz has been doing these focus groups and pushing this very carefully worded messaging to conceal you know, Republican positions or to frame them in the best possible light. The, the, but that, the famous Republican pollster, Frank Lutz. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but, there are, but there are many think tanks, there are, you know, sophisticated communications theories that are applied um, on the right to, to couch and frame their language in such a way that fires up their base and that, um, it, you know, diminishes the, 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 the popularity of democratic and progressive positions. So, the first answer to your question is how do we fight it is we need to know it. We need to understand it. I think far too few Democrats, you'll see, for example, polling, so that a quarter of Democrats, um, 80 or 90 percent of Republicans, but up to a quarter of Democrats believe the corporate media is liberal, right? So the liberal media is a myth that is not just bought by the right, but it's bought in large part by the left, and I think in much larger numbers than a quarter by the Democratic establishment. People just take for granted that the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, et cetera, are liberal, when in fact, that is not true at all. They're, they're corporate entities, and the bottom line is what matters to them, and they're good reporters and bad reporters, but by no means are they liberal, and we saw from 2016 that Trump got a much bigger boost. Every study I've seen, Harvard and others, that Trump got a better deal from the mainstream media than Hillary Clinton did. So understanding how the system works is a crucial part of fighting back. And the second step, which is what I counsel people to do, is, you know, step up and do something. Anything that you that you feel that you have a skill at, you like to canvas, you, you want to blog, you want to have a podcast, you, you phone bank, organize, run for office, whatever it is a person can do, step up. We have to be our own leaders. So we start with understanding the landscape. And the next thing we do is we step up, take a role, and fight back. So what you seem to be suggesting is I think some folks might think if I'm posting a tweet or I'm doing a podcast or I'm clicking a link, I'm not really doing anything. I'm, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm, I'm being an armchair activist, not a real activist. You, you seem to be suggesting that even those activities uh, are not trivial. Not, not in the least, Bill. I, I, am, I, I feel very strongly um, about the fact that when, when people who – step onto this digital battlefield because it's a battlefield. You, you, you know, anybody who goes on Twitter and in, gets involved in politics sees that it is it is a vicious place. I mean, people are mobbed and trolled, and it does, particularly women and women of color. Most recent studies have come out. So they cannot go on. It is not a safe space. It's a battlefield, right? It's not a place where you can have rational, uh, peaceful, reasonable conversations. It is a battle. Now, for me, Anybody willing to step onto that battlefield in whatever form and speak out, you know, people talk about the public square, whatever, whatever metaphor you want to use. But if you're willing to go onto Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or anywhere else you, you choose or Reddit and just speak out and speak up about injustice, of course that matters. It, to minimize that and to diminish the fact that some people who, who, who find it incredibly difficult sometimes have to be anonymous because of their work or because they get threatened, to, say, to, to, to somehow say that that's not a valuable contribution. Look, you know, when everybody's silent, that's when fascists and, and, and tyrants can take over. So speaking up and having your voice out there in the world against injustice in whatever form it takes is incredibly important. I would never discourage somebody from doing it. Uh, now, there's certainly, uh, we've seen in uh, far-right circles, 
uh, active spreading of, of misinformation. You know, we've we've seen people, you know, take uh, Alexandria or Ocasio Cortez's head and stick it on, you know, some other photo to make it seem like she's doing something she didn't do. Um, mm-hmm. you know, think things of that nature. Um, yep. Are you concerned that there are similar problems on the left that, however, whether intentional or unintentional, that it's just too easy? to share something or echo something that hasn't been fully vetted and fact-checked. And then then it becomes a matter of, you know, equivalence, false or otherwise, that both sides do it. There's, you know, false equivalence is um, is just sort of endemic at this point, but we got to be very careful to avoid it. Um, In every study that you see for years now, it is crystal clear, and from you know major organizations and academic institutions and even government studies, that extremism, you know, polarization, uh, uh, extremist violence, is predominantly, and I'm talking about in huge numbers, coming from the right, not the left. And I, I was on MSNBC the other day, and I was asked about, you know, uh, you know, this whole Democrats going too far to the left, and I said, you know what? <laughs> That's an absurd premise because the fact is when when you move to the left, you're talking about – or the concept right now uh, of moving to the left means universal health care, you know, dealing with a climate crisis, uh, affordable college, a living wage. And when you move to the far right, you're talking about Nazis marching in the street. There is no equivalence there. So I, I really don't see – um, these two things is the same. There's a reason I sort of took sides in the title of the book, the subtitle of the book, Confronting the Far-Right Menace. It's a digital civil war, and people on both sides do things they shouldn't do. I am not absolving people on, on the left of, of doing things that they shouldn't do, saying things they shouldn't say, trolling, attacking, harassing. There's misogyny and sexism and racism everywhere in society. But the problem we're confronting right now, Bill, is, is crystal clear. The, the far right has taken over the Republican Party. It's just that simple. The behavior of the right, of, of the GOP, is lawless. They stole a Supreme Court seat from the first black president, and they put a, 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 a credibly accused sexual assaulter and serial perjurer, if, if you watch his testimony. He wasn't convicted of it, but you can see from his testimony he was lying, on the Supreme Court. These are actions that subvert our Constitution, not to mention everything with the Mueller and with Bill, with Bill William Barr, the attorney general's testimony, essentially lying to Congress. So all these things are examples of lawless, corrupt behavior from a party that is essentially taken over by the far right. This is the menace we're dealing with. If we were talking about a Republican Party being comprised of, of principled conservatives that had a different view of our government and our system, that would be one thing. But we have a far-right takeover of America at this point, and this is what I talk about in the book. So maybe this is a, a, an unfair uh, hypothetical because a lot of these things are really case by case. But if you're fighting, if you're fighting a digital civil war and you're trying to keep the focus on the transgressions of the other side, what does one do if you if you're on the left? If you see something moving through the left ecosystem that doesn't pass muster, whether it's factually wrong or uh, in, indicative of some kind of hate, uh, should, should there be self-policing? Or do you say, you know what, this is not nearly as big of a problem what's going on the right. I got to train my fire elsewhere. I, that, that's a, I love that question. And the reason I love that question is because one of the most dangerous impulses 
in a war. And again, I've lived through one. And um, this is my really my sort of my second um, the second phase of my life in which I'm dealing with this intense conflict. Uh, of course, you know, less military than Lebanon, but certainly as intense and with repercussions that are just as, as far reaching. So to your question specifically, it's very dangerous to say anything goes in war and just because we're up against this dangerous far-right menace that's really authoritarian or fascistic or whatever you want to call it, that we should suddenly ditch all our principles as progressives of Dem- and Democrats. That is a very dangerous thing to do. I've always argued that we, again, as progressives and Democrats, which is what I am, we have to embody our principles because we're fighting people who are not principled. You know, people like Lindsey Graham, I've talked about Mitch McConnell, these people serve oligarchs. These people will switch a position from week to week. I mean, Lindsey Graham has become almost like a, a, a mystery figure of what happened to this guy, saying one thing two years ago and something entirely the polar opposite now. That lack of principle should not happen on, our, on the left, the progressive side. And when it does, uh, to your question, yes, we should absolutely call it out and reject it. We have to embody the highest possible aspirations of America as Democrats if we intend to bring America back from the brink of, of, of tyranny at this point. Um, now, you in the book, um, you treat various uh, subject areas as individual battles uh, within a war. Uh, there's a battle uh, battle for choice uh, when it comes to women's reproductive rights, uh, a, a battle for uh, uh, on for faith, for faith, yeah, yeah for, for yeah, exactly, all the different things. Yeah, go on. Um, Going when you when you look at it in that way, uh, does fighting the that, these battles on a digital front or is that a good um, is that a good front for the left? Is it is it is it is it better for Democrats, better for progressives to fight there? Uh, than in other other means, or is it, or is that a false choice? Well, it's not necessarily a false choice. I think the answer to your question is that the right is fighting it out by by digital means. I mean, just look at the amount of spending that the Trump campaign already has put into Facebook and other platforms. These guys know that digital is where it's happening. There's a reason Russia launched a cyber attack in 2016 against the U.S. election system. It was all done digitally. You know, digital warfare is now part and parcel of, of, of all military thinking at this point, not just in the U.S., but globally. Digital is where the fight is happening. So I think for Democrats and progressives, they need to understand how incredibly complex and sophisticated the right-wing digital um, strategy is and, 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 and system is, right? They, they, if, if you take a look at the stats for Facebook, uh, recent studies that have been done, that uh, so-called fake news, and it's a very overused term, but, you know, com- propaganda essentially is by far more common among right-leaning Facebook accounts than left-leaning Facebook accounts. They have managed to figure out a system on YouTube, for example. They actually tag some of their videos that are propaganda, pro-right propaganda videos, with terms like, uh, you know, identity politics, intersectionality, terms that may uh, attract a more liberal readership or progressive readership, and then they suck them into these hardcore right-wing videos. So the battle is online, whether Democrats and progressives and liberals and leftists like it or not. We have to fight there, and we have to fight everywhere. Um, and I go ahead. Well, how, how do you fight that kind of underhanded tactic? So it's one thing to say, let's call out um, the awful views of the far right. 
how do you deal with people on the far right or people from other countries infiltrating American political discourse, trying to put out messages that are designed to divide Democrats and divide the left without being transparent about where those messages are coming from. That seems to be a much trickier problem for the left to grapple with. A lot of it is just investment. I mean, you'll see that on the right, there's a much greater investment in media infrastructure by by, by billionaires and wealthy funders and the system in general. I, I, you know, I return to the notion, and I write about it in several chapters of the book, the, the power of this messaging system created by the right over you know, five decades at this point, 50, 60, 70 years now, they've been slowly building the system uh, of, of, of a full, robust communication system that has gone fully digital now. I mean, there's still Fox, of course, and, and talk radio. Um, but, you know, the, the, this, this media infrastructure is supported and funded on the right. The same cannot be said for the left. The Democratic Party, uh, wealthy donors who are progressive and Democratic donors need to understand that a media infrastructure and predominantly a digital one needs to be supported because there are a lot of people doing it, starting their own podcasts and doing their own shows and radio or whatever it is, but they're just out in the wilderness without any cohesive approach to it. Um, so that's one approach, which is, you know, the people with the power to fund and support to do so. And then on an individual level is to just, you know, raise your awareness, link up with other people who are doing the same, form a front. And I don't know the answer, Bill. At the end of the book and at the beginning of the book, I say, I don't know if we're going to win this fight. There is no guarantee in life. I mean, I, I lived through, as I say, a 15-year civil war. And every two weeks, I remember my dad, may he rest in peace, say, look, uh, two more weeks, there will be a ceasefire. It'll all be over. That went on for 10 years. And uh, people suffered and, and died, lost their businesses, waiting for that peace to come. And it took a long time. Similarly here, I don't know where we'll be. You know, if Trump wins in 2020 and the GOP retains the Senate, they already have the judiciary completely. Uh, I could see a situation in which the, this, the freedom that we have to speak out right now on these platforms will be taken away. I, I, I worry that a much darker future lies ahead if we don't really stop this now. Now, uh, you, you mentioned there uh, a desire for more institutional assistance uh, on the left. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you and I both, you know, being part of you know, the yield blogosphere back in the, in the Bush era days, you know, that was always a cry from this nascent community of bloggers. You know, we need, we need money to do this for a living. We can't just do this as a sideline. It's going to work. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, the, that cavalry never really came for the most part. Uh, no, it never did. It didn't. Uh, but yep. today it seems like the, uh, at least, at least in some corners of the left, the, the antipathy towards uh, money to interest, the Democratic establishment to big donors seems much more pronounced. Do you, do you think that kind of help is desired? Uh, would that, if, if people try to do that uh, amongst you know, the left-leaning wealthy, would that be scoffed at by folks saying, I don't, I don't want you to, to try to buy me and direct my activities? Well, yeah, there's there's always that natural tension because, by definition, people who are activists and 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 uh, critics of the system, the establishment system, are going to look at the system with a lot of uh, uh, justified skepticism. Uh, by the same token, though, 
uh, people who are struggling in progressive media, I think, will welcome the help if it's coming in good faith. You know, if if if, if institutionally there there is money, there is support, there is resources, there are connections made and given to progressive media, I think they would welcome it. You know, within limits. You're, you, you're, you're right. You can't buy somebody's voice and tell them what to say. And there's always a danger of that. Um, but the right has seemed to find a way to do it. Um, they they have created a massive media apparatus that delivers highly potent, carefully crafted messages to their voters, and that keeps about 30% of the American population living in, an, in, 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 in a different reality, and frankly, one that's not connected to, to, to the real world. They created their own reality in which we're being invaded by illegals, as they call them, you know, in which there is no climate crisis, in which Trump is, is some, you know, godlike figure delivered by the Lord to, to save us. I mean, these are, you know, in which Democrats are out there murdering babies. If you, if you listen to this stuff, you will see a completely different reality. And about a third of the population believes it wholeheartedly. Um to, well, at least let me ask one more question on, on that front. Is there a risk on the on the left? I mean, we we see that kind of broad brush characterizations from the right about the left all the time. Uh, is there a risk of doing the same in reverse? That uh, as many examples as there are of of a poor behavior on the far right, is there a risk of broad brushing and alienating folks who are you know center right but not hard right? And making it seem like they're all in the same uh, same camp, and therefore inc- increasing polarization in a way that's not favorable to the left. I think that's a fair question, and I ask myself a lot, Bill. I, the thing I, I struggle with is I hate broad sweeping generalizations um, be, because the danger is you're a lot of people get caught up in it who either do not deserve to be or don't think they deserve to be, you know, there's this constant back and forth, are all Republicans racist because they support Trump? I really try to stay focused and not do that. I try to avoid broad brushing, you know, a whole portion of the country. So I talk more about the media the media ecosystem that delivers the message, right? I talk about the Republican Party leadership. Now, there are those on the left, and le- or, or let's say blue America in the broadest sense, who say anybody who's voting for Donald Trump is supporting essentially, you know, Stephen Miller, people like that, is essentially supporting racist, misogynistic policies, and therefore they are fully culpable. And that's for them to say. It's, you know, again, is that too broad or is it accurate, the whole deplorables thing? But see, I avoid terms like deplorable. I avoid it during the primary in 2006 terms like Bernie bro or Hillbot, these, these sort of broad brush terms. But, but if, you, if you look carefully at the policies of the Republican Party and its leadership, there is no doubt that they are morally corrupt and bankrupt policies on just about every level. And I go through it line by line in my book. Part of the book is to lay out moral arguments. So uh, take a look at guns, for example. There is no rational, reasonable world in which one could argue that an elementary school teacher should walk into a classroom with a firearm. And yet that is the position of the Republican Party and the right. So we have been pulled all the way, as I argue in the book, to the far right's turf on these debates. That is not reasonable. That is outlandish. It's, you know, I don't want to use the language of, of, of mental illness. I try to stay away from terms like insane and whatever it is, but it, it is just impossible to fathom that teachers teaching five-year-olds should be walking in with weapons into the classroom. So, so, so what I'm saying is 
People supporting those policies need to own up to the fact that they are morally corrupt policies driven by the GOP. Uh, so you, you mentioned just a little bit before that you don't know how this is all going to turn out. You're not predicting victory. Um, what do you want people to come away with after reading Digital Civil War? I, I, I would hope that people would read through the, the reason I separated it issue by issue, like each of the battles that we're having. Abortion is is one that's very important to me. In 2016, uh, my wife and I lost our first baby together to an ectopic pregnancy. She had to have emergency surgery. You know, we, we actually heard a, a heartbeat, but the baby was growing, you know, outside her stomach and there was no way that pregnancy was viable. So, the issue of abortion is incredibly personal to people, you know, and, and people can, in good faith, can have complete disagreements. So what I try to do in the book, and I, and I hope people will, will, will take this away, is on issues like abortion and each of these problems that have deep moral dilemmas at their root, how to look at it, how to understand it, how to follow the, how the, how the fight takes place digitally and, 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 every, and non-digitally as well. You know, is it about a woman's choice? Is it about murder? Is it about abortion? What is you know, life, conception, personhood? These are deep moral issues that ethicists and academics and experts and doctors look at. And so for me, I, I land on the fact that it, in the end, the moral crux of it goes to the freedom of a woman to choose to, to make that those difficult decisions. So if people can take away from the book, hey, this is underneath all these talking points we see uh, on, on cable news and elsewhere, and it digs deeper. Uh, hopefully, I, I was able to do that. The book is Digital Civil War, Confronting the Far-Right Menace. Peter Dow, thanks so much for being on New Books and Politics. Pleasure. Thank you so much, Bill.